From Given, this is Purposing, the podcast that lifts the lid on how to run a truly purpose-driven business. I'm Becky Willen, and with the help of leaders from some of the world's most recognized brands, I'll be demystifying this often misunderstood topic into clear, actionable advice you can use in your own business. This week, I'm joined by Kath Possumai, Talent Acquisition Director for Amazon in Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. Kath believes in the power of purpose to unite and mobilize teams, having done this in her current role and in her previous job with the British Army. We're going to hear about both those experiences. Through this conversation, you'll learn how to create a shared purpose with the power to unite different teams or organizations, use that to drive positive change in your business, and build the key skills and capabilities needed to be a purpose-driven leader. Before I speak with Kath, let's take a quick look back at her career, which has taken her from financial services to the armed forces to one of the biggest tech companies in the world. The British Army defined Kath Possumai's career. She dreamt of serving since her early years. When I was a kid, I was always really re- interested in the military. And I, and I thought about a role in the army. There used to be something you could do between school and university, which was a three-year placement role, effectively. Short-term commission with the army. Kath wanted to enrol, but her relationship with the institution got off to a rocky start. When I was 17, 18, went to Chelmsford Army Careers Centre. And I remember so clearly ringing the bell of this Army Careers Centre, being absolutely nervous and terrified, and meeting this middle-aged male soldier who basically made me feel like I was a complete idiot to have even thought about joining the Army. And there was no way I was going to fit in because I was a girl. This was a blow for Kath. She felt dejected. Putting her childhood ambitions to one side, she landed in recruitment. But throughout her successful 25-year career, she never lost sight of her dream. So when the post to head up the British Army's recruitment became available, she went for it. I really connected strongly with the importance of what we were doing, recruiting tomorrow's army today, that purpose. And I really felt the responsibility and importance of that in a world which was feeling less safe by the day. Kath describes her journey with the army as something of a 360, but it gave her a clear mission, making the military more accessible to women. I know now that if my 17-year-old self walked into Chelmsford Army Career Centre, I'd have a very different experience. And that felt very nice and full circle for me. Kath, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Can you set the scene for us? So what was the context for the relationship between the British Army and Capita, two organisations that I think most people wouldn't expect to be working together? And how would you describe the main differences and similarities between the organisations? So this was a 10-year contract between the British Army and Capita to deliver all recruiting for the Army. Um, And it was something called the RPP, was the name of the contract, which is the Recruiting Partnering project. Um, But for the first kind of six years of that partnership, unfortunately, both parties, and you know, they both admitted this, seem to have missed that essential word of partnering for the first period. And basically, the contract was a very public failure. And I went in as chief exec of the partnership in 2018. And it was basically a turnaround 
project. I was the fifth person to do my role in six years. Um, and, you know, performance was about as bad as it could get. We were performing at about 60% of the army's recruiting targets. Uh, the contract was losing lots of money for capita, and it was getting dragged through the press on on an almost weekly basis with huge scrutiny from, from politicians. And the National Audit Office, actually, the NAO, were about to start an investigation. So it, it was in a bad place. And unfortunately, I culturally, the Capita and the Army were very different organisations. You had a real culture clash between kind of commercial culture and military culture. And the intention of RPP, so the Recruiting Partnering Project, was that you would harness the best of both organisations in delivering recruiting. So you would have the military knowledge, the military understanding of contexts, but together with commercial expertise around process, around technology and around innovation in the recruiting space. And it just hadn't fired at all for the first six years. But there were similarities. And, and I think the similarities across the team, and there was a team of about 1,500 people, of whom around 500 were serving soldiers who were kind of seconded into that team. We were called recruiting group in the army. So 500 soldiers and then the other kind of 900 to 1,000 were civilians working for Capita. But quite a lot of those civilians were ex-army. And I think the entire team genuinely had a huge love and respect for the work of the army and the service of the army. So that was the kind of unifying factor. But culturally, there were some huge differences in the in the two organisations. Can you give some practical examples of the impact of those challenges in terms of the operational effectiveness, but perhaps the impact on the people who were part of the partnership as well? The knowledge that the two organisations were clashing at the top drove that clash all the way down through the teams. To give an example, we had our um, recruiting offices, which were mainly staffed by military personnel and who had a very clear view about how recruitment should be done and tended to therefore ignore any kind of efforts to change or differentiate or innovate that was driven by, you know, the, the civvies and even, you know, the, the language that was used. So we would be, we talk about the greens and the blues the greens being the military, the blues being the civilians. The language was very kind of confrontational. Oh, the, you know, the blues are saying this, or oh, the greens are doing this again. It was, you know, it was a really kind of day-to-day, day-to-day uh, adversarial kind of attitude. And, you know, that made it very difficult for everyone, despite the fact people really cared about trying to do the right thing for candidates at every level, on, on all sides of the partnership. People wanted to do the right thing for the candidates and wanted to do the right thing for the army. But they were just really struggling with this challenge. And because it was so failing so badly, and there was so much pressure and and scrutiny externally from politicians and the top levels of both organisations, the army and capita, and the press, and there was always the nearest shiny object. Someone always had a brilliant idea that was going to fix everything. And so the team were being pushed constantly to chase the nearest shiny object. For a long time, it felt like a five-year-old football team. Um, because everybody was chasing the ball um, instead of spreading out and really attacking the problem in a you know in a more strategic way, and instead of getting the best of both, you know the, the green and the best of the greens and the best of the blues, we kind of got the worst of both. We used to joke about it being purple gas instead of a beautiful peacock. You know, <laughs> green and blue together should have been a beautiful peacock, but instead we had this nasty purple gas, and it meant that we had a very very uh, hierarchical approach, you know, that the kind of the worst of the, of the very strict hierarchy that the army has for good reason or operations manifested itself. So anyone who was close to the problem and on the ground would see a problem and would tell their manager and then wait for this problem to go up the chain to the leadership team, who are very distant, you know, disconnected body, and then wait for the answer to come back down again before they would do anything. And if the answer never came, then they just shrugged. Rather than 
feeling empowered, feeling trusted, able to solve problems in an agile way and to get on with delivering what we all wanted to be delivering. It was a pretty broken organisation. And also, a lot of people who were working really hard and doing their best within their sphere of influence to deliver, but constantly being criticised in the press by the politicians, by their leadership for not delivering in what they felt was a pretty impossible situation. So you come in as CEO in the midst of that hugely challenging environment after a long succession of leaders who haven't been able to get their two organisations to work together. And at what point, how quickly into your sort of tenure as CEO did you realise that building a shared purpose was going to be so important to solving these challenges and, and really realising the, the true potential of the partnership? I mean, I was lucky I'd spent some time. I was there for a year before I took on the CEO job. So I, you know, I'd had the opportunity to really understand and see the problem. I was also very lucky, timing is everything, I think, that I, you know, I was asked to step into my role at the same time, that there was a real new tone from the top from both Capita and the army. Capita had a new chief exec and he had met with the, the chief of the general staff of the army and they both said, okay, we need to draw a line under everything that's gone before. We need to recognize that this has the potential to be a great partnership. We've all made mistakes. Both organizations have made mistakes. Let's draw a line under it. Let's move forward in a positive way. And then there there were some leadership changes. I came in as chief exec on the capita side. And there was also two new generals who came in on the army side. And one particularly who I worked extremely closely with and effectively we partnered. And we have sat down and looked back at, so what made this work? now with the benefit of hindsight. But we both had the same kind of fundamental values around leadership and culture and people. And we both recognised that if we wanted to fix performance, we needed to start with the culture. We needed to fix the culture. And successive leaders on both sides of the partnership had just focused on performance and operational factors and had never really focused on the culture and the people. And we thought, you know, that to make large scale change happen, we needed that shared purpose and we needed to enable the teams to really unite over a cause and to really articulate what the shared vision was. And as I've said, you know, throughout, even when things were going badly, no one would ever have questioned that the teams on all sides really cared about the candidates and really cared about the army. But we really failed in in harnessing that passion that was there into something that was articulated clearly and could really govern what we did every day. So our job really was to kind of smooth that out, I think. That must have been a huge shift in tone. I mean, Capita, I think, is known as a pretty hard-edged kind of commercial organisation. And as you've said, the army, pretty hierarchical. So what was the reaction to something that might have been considered a bit sort of soft and fluffy, something like purpose and culture? Did you have to convince anybody internally that actually, uh, especially at a senior level, that that focus on people and culture and not purely on performance was the right way to go? I think capital sometimes get an unfair bad press. <laughs> um, and actually, the uh, the chief exec who came in at the end of 2017, John Lewis, who's still chief exec, actually had a, a huge focus on people, culture. Um, and so it wasn't as as kind of out of step as you might think to be focusing on that. And actually, the, you know, the way Capita is structured as a managing director or chief exec of that contract, it's a ridiculously overinflated title, really. Um, but as an MD or as an owner, a contract owner, you have enormous autonomy to deliver in the right way for your client and your contract and your people. So I didn't really need to go and ask permission to do this. I needed to make sure I had my leadership in my team on board. And I needed to make sure that my, my colleagues in the army were on board. But beyond that, I had, uh, I had reasonable free reign to, to take the approach that I thought was the right thing to do. 
tell me a bit about that approach. So, you know, what did building a shared purpose between the two organizations look like in practice? You know, who was involved? What were the steps? Um, and what was the end result? So in my kind of 1500 recruiting group, as we were called, of, you know, 500 soldiers, 1000 civilians, I had a kind of extended leadership team, which is a fairly sizable organization of about the 100 people. And we worked with them together on articulating a purpose. So, you know, it's reasonably straightforward. It's, and there's plenty of books written about it. And, and we workshopped it. We tested all sorts of options. We used post-its and whiteboards. We used some capital facilitators who were, who, were, who were very good. And we, and we tested it extensively with, with the whole team before we landed on anything. And it was actually interesting to me because I had a view on what I thought it would be. And actually, you know, we ended up on something a bit different, but it still really, you know, it really, really resonated with me and it resonated with the entire team. Um, And the end result we got to was recruiting tomorrow's army today. And the bit that was really important in that was the tomorrow word, because everybody really keenly felt the responsibility of what we were doing was about securing success and resilience um, and sustainability in tomorrow's army you know what we what we do today affects affects the future and that really came through very very strongly from the the focus group we did the sessions the whiteboarding and in the end it wasn't hard wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be to land on something that everyone could really connect with that's really interesting and I think one of the things that I think is really important to sort of appreciate in the world of purpose is that there's a big difference between being an organization that has a purpose statement and being a truly purpose-driven organization. And I think actually you you can think about um, the extent to which organizations are truly purpose-driven by the extent to which their purpose actually helps them make decisions. So can you talk about some of the things that changed as a result of having that clarity about what the shared purpose was and how did that show up in big strategic decisions or sort of day-to-day decisions that were being made across the organization? A good example would be the Army's medical entry standards, which hadn't been really scrutinized or challenged for, for many years and had probably got a little bit outdated and needed to be looked at. It helped us make some decisions around actually, could we take a little bit more risk in terms of the fitness standards of, of some people coming in. So, you know, if someone was four seconds over the, the target runtime, would we really send them away for three months to work on that? Or would we take a bit of risk and say, actually, in 14 weeks of basic training, the army is going to make up four seconds over a, over a mile and a half run? And in thinking about entrance policy, so we, we did a whole tranche of work jointly with the army around looking at every single aspect of, of the army that had any kind of impact or influence on recruiting and examining every angle as to what were the small changes. And it's a bit like Clive Woodward with England Rugby uh, and Dave Brailsford with with Sky Cycling, you know, looking at all those marginal gains everywhere that if you added them up would make a significant difference. And we did that because we needed to recruit tomorrow's army. I also think what's so interesting about this story is the sort of intrinsic why 
was there for people. But actually, the thing that your purpose helped to clarify was much more of the how, that focus on the idea of building tomorrow's army. It's not just about the why. It kind of really speaks to the things that need to change or be different in the organisation. And so actually, I think that really speaks to the idea that a powerful purpose doesn't just describe sort of why an organisation exists. It also helps to direct and guide exactly what you should be focused on and how you should be doing it as well. Moving on to your current role at Amazon. So a very different environment, I'm sure. How is talent acquisition managed at Amazon in Europe, Middle East and and Africa? And what are some of the unique challenges and opportunities that you face in this role today? Talent acquisition in Amazon is kind of aligned to the different vertical businesses. So you have Amazon Web Services, AWS, cloud business, quite separate, joins up right at the top of Amazon. Devices, which is the, you know, they make the amazing Alexas and Kindles, um, which is a separate business. And then the, the biggest bit in the middle, which is the bit everyone thinks of when they think of Amazon, is Amazon stores. So, you know, the online platform, the delivery service, you know, the one that started it all, really. Talent acquisition is everything from sort of shift manager level up to exec hiring. So not frontline staffing, but uh, but everything kind of in, in the kind of middle to senior levels. Um, and I look after EMEA, so Europe, Middle East, Africa for for the stores business. So we recruit, the numbers are kind of mind boggling. (laughs) We recruit for hundreds of roles, you know, in tens of countries, all with their own employment laws, their own languages, their own cultural differences. And my team's based across probably 20 countries and speak, I mean, the team, we have done a kind of word cloud of how many languages everyone speaks and it's about 50. And obviously we, you know, we, we cover multiple time zones. So it is hugely rewarding. And the bit that I really love and the bit that kind of hooked me when I got the phone call from Amazon when I was wondering what to do next uh, after the army is the challenge of you know uniting and leading an enormously diverse team and how you know creating a feeling of belonging and unity in that team despite the fact we'll probably never all be physically together in one space you know and the nature of our work you know this kind of day-to-day work of of recruiting thousands of people can drive kind of real day-to-day operational silos. So kind of making the team feel united is the, is the kind of leadership challenge that I enjoy. And can you talk about some of the recent changes to the way that the team was set up? I think the decision was made to actually bring two teams together and that was sort of in part how your new role was created. Could you talk a little bit about that? So until recently, we had two separate teams for stores in EMEA. One was doing kind of everything for all parts of the business up to the kind of buy it now on the website. So all the partnering with sellers and vendors, all the retail, all the advertising. And the other part, which was the part that I was leading initially when I first joined, was doing everything from buy it now on the website. So the bit that delivers your parcels at warp speed. And I was really responsible just for that second part. Um, But in November, I was asked to take on the other half too and create a single team, which made a load of sense on many, many levels because you know having now having the teams together that support the end to end customer journey is meaning we can identify much better easier ways of doing things you know our recruiters are less siloed we're trying to drive out silos and we're finding ways to collaborate and be a bit more agile and in all our kind of project management approaches around how we approach diversity trying to reduce duplication of effort across key hiring areas and just also you know being able to more easily offer our teams the ability to move around and have a greater breadth of work and supporting our internal customers. So perhaps unsurprisingly, as a, as a result of your experience with Capita and the British Army, but one of your first decisions was to create a shared purpose that really brought these two teams together. So why did you see that as so important to making this new team successful? 
as we know, it's important for any team to start with why. <laughs> so yes, shamelessly quoting Simon Sinek. But yeah, my experience with the army had shown me that if you've got a situation where you're bringing two different teams, which whatever reason they're different, if you're bringing two teams together, then I think it's even more critical to, to, to nail the why early. And it was, you know, a new beginning for two teams who'd kind of worked alongside each other, but really had very little to do with each other previously. And it really needed to feel, and I use this, use these words deliberately with the team, you know, it needed to feel like a, it's a friendly merger, <laughs> you know. As opposed to a hostile takeover. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Just, you know, just because I happened to previously have been the leader of one of the two teams, you know, there was, a, there was a danger that some people might have, you know, perceived it as a hostile takeover. And it definitely wasn't. And I really, really felt it was important that it felt like and was a friendly merger. And, you know, and I was lucky actually that I, I had originally planned anyway to have my leadership group all together quite soon after this change happened. And I was able to use that time then to add the wider leadership group across both of the teams um, and use that time away, kind of all physically together in one place, to spend some time thinking about that that why. Can you talk a bit about what that looked in, in practice and anything that you did differently, I guess, to really bring that idea of a friendly merger to life through the process and through to the way that you were working with your teams? Well, the first thing we did was look at where we, what our starting points were as two separate teams, because we had, you know, each team had a, a purpose statement, a vision statement that they had been working with. So we weren't starting from zero. And I also felt probably it was best to look at what we had rather than just throw both of those out completely. So we, we looked at, at both of them and we started from there. And actually, <laughs> we were lucky in that they were very, very similar in tone and intent. So it didn't feel like we were working, we were starting from a completely different place, which was, which was great. And I suppose you would, you'd expect that we were working in the same organization, essentially the same tasks and, and same roles. So we then, you know, started with those two and we, we workshopped with, it was a group of about a hundred and workshopped them into what could be a new joint purpose, which, you know, was, which paid respect to both. <laughs> Um, and and could resonate with everyone. And there were some there were some key words that we could really draw out that were really important to both teams. So one was, you know, and I think the teams feel very keenly the responsibility of being, you know, the connectors and the gatekeepers, effectively, to Amazon, which are one of the world's biggest companies. You know, where there are really really incredible career opportunities globally. Um, and so the words that were kind of coming out was around connection, definitely, um, was really, really important. And then the other one that the responsibility everyone felt really keenly was about, particularly in our geographies and the, the communities we serve, was the importance of the diversity of the candidates that we work with. So we really felt we wanted to to reflect that in in what we came out with in terms of our purpose. So and then and obviously the one the the final element was just this you know what's unique you know what's different about this talent acquisition team in Amazon compared to any other recruiting team in any other company and why is why is it unique for us and it was really that the level of the opportunity that we are unlocking and we are connecting which is how we then got to the statement which is connecting everyone with exceptional opportunities everywhere because we felt that was the unique nature of what we do as a team because the geographical footprint is so huge. You know, the opportunities are endless almost with Amazon. And we very specifically wanted to make sure we were talking about everyone to reflect the fact that we are trying to be as inclusive as we possibly can be when we recruit into the organisation. 
So this year, we've seen Amazon workers in the UK take strike action on pay. So, you know, I know that Amazon is known for being an incredibly customer-centric organization. But from your position, you know, what's happening internally to make sure that that doesn't come at the expense of people uh, more generally, like your workers or the planet? So I think Amazon has always tried really hard to do the right thing. And one of the things I like about the organization is that I think while we sometimes do get things wrong, and in a 1.6 million person company, sometimes people are going to get things wrong. Um, we genuinely are doing our best to do the right thing. And I see the organization and I see our leaders doing our best to do the right thing all the time. You know, And the organization has never been afraid to fail and learn, you know, and, and we try to fail quickly and learn, you know, in pursuit of, you know, eventual excellence and because something aligns with our with our customer obsession. And we have a concept, there's a concept on Amazon I really like, which is about one-way door and two-way door decisions. And, you know, and a two-way door decision is something that you can, a decision you can take and you can go back through the door. So it's a two-way door. And we are actively encouraged, if it's a two-way door decision, don't think too much about it get on and do it because you can always come back through the door. If it's a one-way door decision, i.e. you can't come back through the door, then think a little bit harder, do a bit more research before you make that before you make that decision. And I think it's really true in areas like sustainability, like diversity. And you know, and in terms of sustainability, Amazon's really led the charge around that. Um, in terms of, you know, meeting the climate change pledge 10 years early and really working with other companies to push to try and achieve that as well. You know, we've made a huge investment in a company called Rivian, which is building electric vehicles. And actually, I was in Seattle a couple of weeks ago, and those electric delivery vehicles are everywhere. You don't see the old-fashioned petrol-based, diesel-based lorries very much in Seattle now. And those are coming um, across, across the US and more broadly. And actually, that investment very publicly has lost a lot of money. But we're still doing it because it's the right thing to do long-term, and we believe in it long-term. And then... We have things like, which I don't think we publicize very well, like our careers choice program. It applies globally and is about training you to leave the company almost. So someone who's worked in one of the Amazon warehouses for a year has access to up to about £8,000, um, and it depends obviously which country you're in, to pursue qualifications in any career that they might want to choose. So it may be that they want to be a nurse or an engineer, or a lawyer, um, you know, Amazon will support someone going and getting those qualifications, even if it explicitly means that that job doesn't exist in Amazon and they will go on and leave. But we're still supporting that, which is, I think, quite phenomenal. There are not many companies that would train you to leave, uh, actually. So there's an awful lot that Amazon does to give back. I don't think we often shout about it enough, actually. And just before I joined, I think, a couple of years ago, Amazon had 14 leadership principles, which are absolutely ingrained in how we do everything. They're all over everywhere. And it's they govern how we select, how we hire, how we promote, how we work day to day. You know, they are often quoted in meetings, um, the leadership principles. They were written years ago by Jeff Bezos. And, and two, two more were added about two years ago. And they explicitly focus on, one is strive to be Earth's best employer. And the other is... I'm paraphrasing slightly. It's almost with great power comes great responsibility, but it is. It is about, you know, scale brings real responsibility and it's all about being sustainable and responsible. So, yes, I think sometimes I'm sure we, we do get things wrong, but equally, 
the important part for me is we are really, really trying to get things right and to improve things all the time and to influence others um, in the way we do that. And we're putting a lot of money into it. So two really fascinating experiences and very different organisations. What advice do you have for anyone who's thinking about the opportunity to use purpose as a means of uniting two different groups that they have, either you know within an organisation it's about bringing two teams together or perhaps as part of a sort of M&A process? What's the advice that you would share having done this twice now in your career? kind of be respectful of what's gone before for both if you're if you're looking at bringing two different teams together or two different organizations together so what's the start point for both and trying to be as respectful as you can of that i would say try and do it early don't hesitate you know don't don't wait it, it needs to be a priority because it has such an important unifying impact if you do it right i think it's important to to consult broadly, you know, in both the examples I gave with with the army and with Amazon, I ended up doing the bulk of the work in terms of the workshopping and the ideas generation and the debate initially with a kind of extended leadership team, so kind of middle to senior management population, and then sharing and testing with full teams, full employees. And I think, you know, and, and I've, I've heard different approaches. I think it did work. Could it have worked better if we, if we consulted everybody on the actual wording around purpose statement? Possibly, I don't know. But I think, you know, it can work that way. But definitely then testing it at the very least with absolutely everyone in the organisation is, is really important. I don't think you can impose it uh, as a leadership decision, you know, leadership management decided statement approach. And then I think the other one is really, really investing. I mentioned this earlier, but really investing in that management leadership population to really equip them to bring it to life. A great purpose statement isn't enough. You know, the leaders have got to be comfortable talking about it with their teams um, and got to keep it alive going forward. So all the kind of clever communications mechanisms that you can employ to keep it front of mind for your staff and for your teams. And, you know, one of the things I do is a monthly vlog with my team, which is literally I get my iPhone and I record myself talking for four or five minutes. And it generally, and I have a rule that I might make four or five kind of topic headlines before I go, before I do it. So I know what I want to say, but then I do it in one cut and it's unscripted. And if I say, um, uh, then it stays in because it needs to be authentic and, and real. And so my teams can really see what I'm thinking and, and doing. And I use that as a vehicle to try and connect again with the purpose by referring back to it when I, when I can. So every communications mechanism, investing in your leadership, uh, capability, doing it early and making sure it's, you know, kind of broadly consulted on, I think would be my my biggest advice points. Great. Kath, it's been such a pleasure having you on Purposing. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Thanks again to Kath. Lots of brilliant insight there. So here's a few things that I've taken from the conversation. If you want to define a new purpose to unite two teams, cultures or organisations, It's essential to draw a line under past problems and start from the perspective that everyone is trying to do the right thing. This means you can look forward to create a sense of what's possible in the future. When it comes to delivering on your purpose, it's the marginal gains, the smaller incremental choices that really make the difference. The big stuff shows everyone you're serious about purpose, but it's the hundreds of everyday choices, like not having a hard cutoff on target time for getting into the army, that over time drives real impact. Invest in upskilling your leaders so that they can clearly and confidently bring your purpose to life. Find clever ways to get your purpose on the agenda and help people join the dots between their day-to-day roles and the bigger mission. 
Making it authentic makes it real. If you'd like more practical advice on building a purpose-driven business with brilliant insights from people like Kath, download our Insider's Guide to Purpose at givenagency.com forward slash insider's guide.